Now we're going to read from God's Word, and we are in the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign Do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we looked at the beginning of the signs of Jesus. We saw that Jesus miraculously provided wine for a wedding. When they ran out of wine, he used a miracle to do that. He turned water into wine, and that sign showed that Jesus came to bring joy. Well, this week we look at the next set of signs from Jesus, and these signal that Jesus comes to bring judgment. Last week we saw that Jesus came to bring joy. This week we see that Jesus came also to bring judgment. The sign at the wedding occurs in the background. Only a few people knew about it. This event is public. It's in the capital. It's at a high holiday. It's at the holiest place of the temple, uh, the holiest place of the people, the temple at Jerusalem, and it's at a time when it's packed. It's at the Passover, when not just the city residents will be there at temple, but pilgrims and worshipers jam the city and jam the temple, and Jesus acts in full sight of all that are present. This is public. Now, you children who are listening, you know there are things that you are not allowed to do. You've been told there are things you're not allowed to do. For instance, you're not allowed to, to hit other people, right? And, and you're not allowed to knock over stuff. You're not allowed to knock over other people's stuff. And you're definitely not allowed to hit people and knock over people's stuff at church, right? But in this passage, Jesus does something that you're not allowed to do. This is one of the most controversial actions of Jesus, even today. What we saw here, what we read, was that Jesus takes a handful of of cords and he forms just this makeshift whip and he whips people and their animals out of the temple. He knocks over tables, their tables. He dumps out their stuff. He tells them to take all of it out, to take it outside. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is what we see. Jesus brings judgment. Jesus judges. 
We start with this. Jesus judges our worship and our wealth. Jesus judges our worship and our wealth. What you have here is the people of God, the Jews, they've come from all over for the annual Passover feast, one of the highest of the Jewish holidays. And even though the Romans have political rule over their country, they don't have their worship. The people still have their worship. And so everyone who's able to travel from near, from far, they come to observe the Passover at the temple in Jerusalem. The temple is the religious center for Judaism. More than that, the temple is the place where the glory of God dwelt. His special presence came down from heaven, touched the earth. There was no other place. God had selected it. God inhabited it. It was his dwelling place, his home. So verse 13, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. He travels from the north, Galilee, his hometown, and he comes down to Jerusalem in the south for the Passover. And and this is just one of many examples that show us that Jesus observes all of the stipulations of Judaism. What did they do, though? What did observant Jews do when they came to temple in Jerusalem? Well, if you came from a distance, a a great distance perhaps, you could not always transport the animals that you would need for sacrifice. And so God's law recognized that and God's law provided a way for you to bring money to the temple and as you came into Jerusalem for worship, you could purchase a suitable animal as you came into town and you could use that animal. And not only could you, you come when you came to Jerusalem and purchase an animal for sacrifice, you also would come and, and you would While you're there in town, you would pay the annual temple tax. Exodus 30 describes there was this half shekel in temple currency. There were different currencies, uh, lots of different currencies in those times. And you could purchase a half shekel. Uh, You would pay the temple tax in a half shekel in temple currency. It would be about six ounces of silver for everyone who was an adult Jew. And so if you came from out of town, not only would you perhaps purchase an animal for sacrifice once you came to Jerusalem, you would also need to convert your currency from wherever you came from, whether it was up north in, in, in uh, Galilee or even further in, in other countries, and you would convert the currency from your home into the currency of the temple. And so when you come into verse 14, what you see is that Jesus comes to the temple, he knows what people are there to do what they should be doing, but what does he find? He finds when he comes to the temple and he just enters into the perimeter, into the outer courtyard of the temple, that's the place where people who were not Jews, but they were people who respected God. They were people who feared God. They were sometimes called God-fearing Gentiles. That outer courtyard was for God-fearing Gentiles to come and to pray to the Lord. It's the outer courtyard, it was like their satellite campus location where they could attend the worship service. But what Jesus finds when he comes there is, when he comes there, he finds an outer courtyard not filled with Gentiles praying and seeking God. Instead, Jesus finds sellers. He finds merchants. He finds business booths selling animals. He finds business booths doing foreign currency conversion for a fee. Now, there's no indication that they were charging unfair rates for the animals or for the currency conversion, but the selling of the sacrifice animals and the the foreign currency exchange that was happening in the outer courtyard 
that used to happen, not in the temple, not in the outer courtyard. It used to happen outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, on the slope of the Mount of Olives. It used to happen outside of all that. But now the temple leadership has granted permission for the merchants to come into the temple perimeter and to do their business in the temple courtyard. It made things a little bit more convenient for some of the traveling Jews, but it prevented Gentiles. It prevented those who feared God from having their place where they could pray and where they could worship and access God. And so what, what Jesus is seeing here is the merchants have pushed into the worship space. Verse 14, Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Okay, that's the setting, that's the setup. That's what didn't used to be. How does Jesus respond? Verse 14, Jesus is he's just absolutely eaten up with zeal. He's passionately worked up. Jesus was a true man, and so he had emotions. You see some of these emotions. He has strong emotions here. Jesus responds with, with strong emotions and also with vigorous force. Verse 15, he bundles these light ropes into an improvised herding whip and, and he drives out the animals and he drives out the animal merchants. He, he overturns the tables with the bags of money and the boxes of money and he, he dumps those out too. He flips over tables. He tells them, get your stuff out now. Now we can't be certain, but there is good reason to believe that this is the first of two times that Jesus clears out the temple. And you might hear all this, you might have the picture formed in your mind and it really resonates with you positively. You might think, that's great. That's, that's like the best form of civil disobedience. It's, it's sticking it to the man when it needed to happen. But let's start at home here. What's, what's, what's going on with what Jesus is doing? Jesus is rebuking the system. Jesus is rebuking the status quo He's, he's, he's rebuking the worship practice that everybody is okay with. And so this is what we see. Jesus cares about the public worship of God. Christ cares about the public worship of God. And Jesus cares about it enough that he will judge and correct the public worship. Our worship. The worship that we think is normal and is fine and ought to be fine. They should not have changed the worship practices that were established by God. And that's them. Easy to criticize them, especially when there's a separation of culture, time, and place. But, but how about us? If Jesus today, if Jesus came to church today, would Jesus correct anything? Would Jesus correct things in, in our worship, in, in, in our congregation because it's not just that this is a singular time that Jesus corrected church. Correcting church is nothing new. In the New Testament, it keeps on happening. Paul, at the church in Galatia, he stands up in the church, in the assembled congregation. He stands up and he rebukes Peter. Peter, who is the rock of the church. If anyone's going to have legitimacy and authority for what he's saying, what he's doing, it would be Peter. But Paul re re rebukes Peter in front of everyone, for keeping Gentiles from having full fellowship in the church. And, and not only there, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, he gives us an entire chapter about worship, but it's also an entire chapter 
critiquing the worship practices, the accepted worship practices of the Corinthian church. Correcting church is nothing new. Would Jesus judge and correct things in our worship? Well, maybe there are a few things. I'm not trying to make an exhaustive list, but maybe first you could, we could start with this. First, do, do you even come to worship? Do you come to worship? Do you attend worship with the congregation on Sundays? Or, or have you become careless? Have you become careless, ambivalent about worshiping God? Jesus in Revelation, this is one of the things that he corrects his church, the church at Laodicea. He says to them, you've become lukewarm. You, church, have become lukewarm, Jesus says. He says, you've become lukewarm about me. The question that we can always ask ourselves, and, and this might be painful, but it's profitable. Are, are you lukewarm? Are you lukewarm about attending the worship of God each week? Have you become lukewarm about the Lord? In Ezekiel 22, verse 8, the Lord comes to his people and he condemns them for disliking worship. He, he says, you have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. He, he's saying, these things that happen in church, they're, they're not the people who, they're not the elders. It's not those people, it's the Lord's. And, and the Sabbath, it's not, it's not our practice. It's not our view of the Lord's day. It's, it's his, it's his Sabbaths. So first of all, do you, do you come to worship? Uh, the second question you could ask, well, you, you come, and that's good. Second, are you engaged in worship? Is your heart in it? When you attend worship, are you engaged heart and soul and mind? Is your, is your body present, but your mind is it's somewhere else? You're there, but you're not there. Are you, thinking, are you there? And, and really the whole thing is you're, you're thinking about car repairs. You're giving yourself over to thinking about car repairs or thinking about work or thinking about money matters. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, quoting Isaiah, says this. These people draw near to me with their mouth. The people are there. They're speaking. Maybe they're singing. Maybe they're praying with their mouth. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but... Their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And so, just very simple application that we can always be, be reflecting on and testing ourselves with. Do you sing in the congregation? Do you sing from the heart when you sing? Are you making melody, not just with airways, but are you making melody to the Lord? Do you pray in the congregation and and when we're praying together, do you pray to the Lord? Not just the posture of prayer, which is important, but, but do you pray to the Lord? Is your heart, is your spirit echoing to God what others are praying? Are you engaged? Is your heart in it? We see that Jesus judges and, and corrects our worship. We also see this, though. We also see that Jesus judges and corrects our wealth. This is about worship, but it's also about our wealth. It's about our relationship with money. We all have a relationship with money, whether you have one that's very focused and very intense and it fills your mind, or whether it doesn't. That's your relationship with money. This passage doesn't condemn the merchants for selling animals. The passage does not condemn the merchants for providing currency conversion. Uh, 
But Jesus condemns people for letting money, the concerns for money, squeeze out the worship of God. In one sense, they are so busy with making life work, with the bills, with the shopping list, with the kids' schedules, with a dozen other things that everyone is trying to juggle. So busy with all of that, that worship is squeezed out. The Lord's out of sight. The Lord's out of mind. And it's understandable, isn't it? When you think about all the demands you have of putting in the hours to get your paycheck, but it can become more important than offering worship to God. Those things can become such a demand that you submit yourself to that demand and you don't hear the call to come and worship God. The worries about making enough money, they become so big that you don't have time for worship or money concerns become so heavy that you don't have space in your head to focus on God and to worship him. You're at worship, but your mind is a million miles somewhere else. Your mind is on money and the pressing cares of this world, the worries and cares, not for today, but for tomorrow and for the week to come. Jesus says, out with that. Jesus says, drive that all out. This is the time and the place for praising God. What captures your head your heart today, even tonight, what has captured your heart tonight? Is it, is it the lovely living God? Or is it something else? Well, maybe Jesus wants to judge and to correct that. Our worship, our wealth. We also see this. Jesus also judges and corrects his house. He comes in verse 16, he says to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house, a house of merchandise. Jesus addresses their worship, but he also speaks of the house of God, his father's house, the place where his father dwells. And so we're, here we're talking about the worship of the church. We're also talking about the household of God. We're talking about church itself. First, first Peter 4.17 says this, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? So there's judgment to come for those who reject Christ and who reject the gospel, but judgment first, he says, the time now is for judgment to begin at, at God's house. It begins with us first, he says. So Jesus comes to church. Jesus comes to his house, and Jesus will address things that should not be happening in his father's house, in church, in the body of Christ. Jesus has authority to do that. Jesus exercises his authority in his own house. Here are a few ways that, that we see that he does that, and, and maybe some of these might speak to, to some of us. One way that Jesus comes and judges his house Jesus opposes, Jesus opposes anger and quarrels in the church. James 4, 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? John, 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, 
how can he love God whom he has not seen? So, so Jesus speaks to his own household, to church, about quarrels, about anger, about hatred. He says it's got to be put out. It must be put out. It will not be in my house. Jesus also opposes sins of the tongue in church. So that would be things like gossip. That would be things like speaking evil about another. That would include scoffing, scorn. Leviticus 19.16 You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Don't go around spreading gossip. Don't go around spreading stories that aren't true. <coughs> Proverbs 21.24 A proud and haughty man Scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. Scoffing is is one of these things that's frequently brought up in the Bible, condemned by the scriptures, but it really is something that's exalted today. Many times the, 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 the influencers that we speak and even the candidates that we will promote, they are very scornful people. They are they are very comfortable and frequent in scoffing. This is, this is something that will influence us. This will be something that we find easy to put on ourselves and to practice ourselves if we're not on guard about it. Scoffing. Do you find it easy to hurl critique about others? Do you find it easy to make much of the flaws in others? Do you find it easy to make little of their successes? Do you find it easy to, to assign dark motives to other people. That's, that's some of the spirit of scoffing. You, you, and you say it out loud. And you view people that way. Titus 3 says, speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all people. James 4 says, church, do not speak evil of one another. Have you spoken evil of someone? The more that we as brothers and sisters get to know one another, the more that we interact with each other, the more we serve together, the easier it will be to speak evil of one another. But Jesus says, put that out. Jesus also opposes sins of indulging the flesh in church. This is all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. He opposes the sins of indulging the flesh, especially among the congregation. Drink, substance. Did you know that according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, they do, this, they do this nationwide survey, study, every year. The last one that I could find numbers on were for 2022. In 2022, 25% of the U.S. population used illicit drugs, including marijuana. 17% of the entire U.S. population, 17% met the criteria for having a substance abuse problem, drugs or alcohol abuse. That is 48 million people, 48 million people who meet the criteria for having a substance addiction problem. It's common. It's common. 48 million people. But Jesus addresses substance abuse not just in the country. He's not, he's not, he's not just talking about them. He's addressing it in the church over and over. Places like Ephesians 5.18, written to church. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. I can't tell you how many people that I meet who know the pain and who know the challenges of substance abuse. Many people, their own or in someone significant to them. Are you a believer with a substance abuse problem? Jesus wants you to stop. Do you want to stop? So Jesus judges our worship and our wealth, and Jesus judges his Father's house. Now here's the question. When Jesus the judge comes, will you resist him or will you receive him? Jesus comes to the temple, he flips over the tables, he drives out everything that needs to go, but some people resist that. Some people resist him. Verse 18, the leaders of the temple, the priests, the Sanhedrin council, members of the, they're the ones who brought and allowed these things into God's house, and they say, Jesus, what sign, what sign do you show to us since you're doing these things? What right do you have to correct what we've been doing? What right do you have to clear this house? Now, these are the Jews, it says. These are, these are Jesus' people. They see Jesus take down and clear out what they've allowed for too long in church. And they can't believe that Jesus would dare to do that, dare to say that. And so they say, they challenge him, Jesus, what gives you the right to clear this house? To correct our practices? What sign, what power can you show us to prove that you have the authority to bring judgment on us? Now, believer, all of us have been at that point. All of us have been at that point. Someone, someone brings criticism about your church, about your congregation. And they say, you know, I, I visited, but your, your church, it just wasn't very friendly. Or your church, it just like, some of that stuff is just like, they're really out there. Do you know how like off they are, out of touch they are? Someone brings criticism to your church. Or someone brings up something in your personal life to them that looks like sin. That they want to tell you, you know, you really hurt me. That you have a problem with impatience. You've got a problem with this idol in your life. And they speak to it. And you don't like it. They're bringing correction. They're bringing a judgment to you. Do you have someone like that in your life? Do you have someone who's like a Nathan in your life? Or a Paul in your life? Who, who might even stand up in front of other people and, and speak about your problems, your mess, your, your laundry, and call you out for something public that needs to be called out? Or maybe there's something in your world, something in your world, and Jesus is speaking to you, maybe through a parent, maybe through your spouse, speaking about something that needs to stop, speaking about something that needs to be cleared out of your life and out of that home. Or, or maybe it's not that someone is speaking, maybe Jesus isn't speaking, but maybe Jesus is shutting down something in your life that you should have shut down long ago, but you didn't do it, and so now Jesus is shutting it down. Maybe Jesus is overturning something that was working for you, but Jesus does not like it. Hatred in the home, porn in private, whatever. Whether it's an idol, or whether it's something just like your idleness, is Jesus purging his house? And as he's doing it, are you finding yourself furious at him? Furious at him. You challenge him. You say, no, no, Jesus, you're not supposed to touch that. We can talk about Bible reading. We can talk about volunteering. But you can't take that. 
That is mine. It's ours. I don't think you have a right to clear that out from here. You might say, this isn't the time, Jesus. This isn't the way to do it. Using cords? What kind of message is that sending? Telling them to all get out? What, what kind of, how, how is that helpful? Do you resist rebuke? Do you resist Jesus? Do you, do, you, do you resist it or are you receptive to his correction? Well, what will make you, what will make you receptive to his correction? There, there's someone that I know, not, I'm not talking about anyone here. There's someone I know who was on the rise. Let's, let's call him Max. He was on the rise. He was moving up. He was very gifted. He was very talented. And his recognition was spreading. And he was on the cusp of having even more influence and an even higher position. But Max had a secret rot in his house. There was substance addiction, there was pornography addiction, and there was terrible cruelty to his wife. Max, and this is what was so confusing for everyone, Max was and is a believer, a very committed believer. And it was that strange contradiction, both of Max following Christ and Max also trying to follow the flesh. And Jesus came in and brought zealous, vigorous, forceful correction to Max. Max lost everything. His career, his kids, and his marriage. It was the corrective zeal of Jesus cleansing his house. And years later, in the aftermath of that purging, Max, who still followed Christ and submitted to that, to that correction, Max said, I've never felt so weak and so powerless. And that's where I need to stay. He lost much. But Jesus drove all of those things out of his house. It was, as they put it, a severe mercy, a costly mercy. Well, what will make it possible to receive and not to resist Jesus, the judge? Well, in, in answer to their challenge for a sign that he had the right to be judge, Jesus says, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about the temple building made of stone, which, which eventually, it took 80 years total to complete. He was, it says in the text, he was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple that he was speaking of was his body. He was speaking of his death on the cross, the resurrection. He was talking about his rising from the dead. He was talking about the crucifixion, and he was talking about his rising from the dead, the resurrection. He was talking about the gospel. That's the sign that will make you receptive to receiving the criticism, the correction, the judgment of Jesus. It's the gospel. In our text, Jesus comes as the judge, and he purges the temple of the sinners. He drives out all those commercial interests that had crowded out true worship. Jesus is the judge who purged the temple with whips. But in the gospel, in the gospel, instead of bringing whips on sinners... Jesus is the judge who was scourged and whipped in our place. It's the strangeness of the gospel. Jesus is the judge who comes and he delivers a sentence of guilt upon us. And Jesus is the judge who steps down and who says, now I will take the punishment 
for you. Why? Because Jesus is the judge who first came to save. Not only is Jesus whipped and punished in our place, Jesus is cast out from the presence of God so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On that day, Jesus purged the temple of all of those merchants in the gospel. Jesus is the one who's driven out of the presence of his Father so that we always have a place as children of the Father. When you understand that, that strangeness of of the gospel, it's almost like a roll swap. When you understand that, it gives you a security. It gives you the ability to receive the correction and the judgment of Jesus now. Because when you're secure in that, when you really are convinced that Jesus was judged instead of you and that Jesus has brought you into an eternal home where you'll never be driven out, that is how. That will make you secure enough to receive instead of rejecting the correction of Jesus. And if you are able to live in that and stand on that, when he comes, his correction, it's just correction. It doesn't threaten you. He is the judge who is judged for you. And so you don't fear. You don't despair when his correction comes. It's just correction. You're expecting from his correction gain and not loss from his correction. You receive God's correction, but not God's condemnation because you're now righteous in Christ. That's certainly part of what Jesus is talking about when he says that he's the temple, that they will destroy it, but he will raise it in three days. Jesus is the temple which was raised, the temple that's not made with human hands, a blameless, blemishless temple in which no evil inhabits. Jesus is the righteousness that we never built, and we never could build it. He raised it up but which we will in eternally inhabit because he brought us in. When you understand that, the correction of Jesus that comes to you and maybe comes through proxy, through others, the correction, it's a message of love, not condemnation. When he corrects you, this is what it tells you. If you get this, if you're, if you're standing on the gospel, it tells you he loves you. The correction is the correction that a loving father must bring upon a child whom he loves. When you understand the gospel, God's correction is a proof. It's a sign of the father's love. Hebrews 12 says this, the father loves you. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It's chastening correction It's corrective correction. It's constructive correction. It's to build you. It's to cleanse you. It's to rightly orient your heart. And so several things as we close now. First of all, if 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 this this lands with you and you can receive it, this establishes the authority of Jesus over your life. Believers, you are the temple of God. You are the household of God, and Jesus is the head of that. He's the head of the body, the head of the church, and that means that Jesus has the authority to tell you what to stop. That means Jesus has the, tell you, has the authority to tell you what you need to start and what you need to clear out of your life. But secondly, this also, this gives you a way to give correction What are you going to do when you see something that you think that shouldn't be in that person's life? 
Are you going to come with scourges, flails, driving people out, turning over their tables? Or are you going to come as someone who deserved to be driven out yourself, and so now you come without self-righteousness, and you recognize that I stand here by grace? Jesus was driven out so that I won't ever be driven out, and so I'm going to come to this person not with self-righteous anger, but with a spirit of gentleness and meekness, examining myself, because I too am a sinner. This also, if you get this, this gives you an encouragement and it gives you a hope when Jesus does correct you. When Jesus corrects you, it can be hard. It can shake your world. But this gives you encouragement and hope. Hebrews 12, 5, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my sons. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. How could you not be discouraged when he, when he corrects you? It's because when he disciplines you, it is not in judicial payment that he's extracting. It's in parental love. He's not coming to cast you out. You don't have to fear that. He's coming to clean you up. He's coming to clean you up because he likes having you in his house. That's why he's coming, to clean you up. And it's also, if you understand this, this, this comforts you when other people have cast you out. When other people have cast you out. It comforts you because Jesus was cast out of the house of God. Even if other people will cast you out, Jesus will never cast you out. That's your comfort. That's your solace in that. And then lastly, this gives you hope for every societal and systemic injustice that continues today. All the things that are messed up with the system, in church, in society, whatever. This gives you hope about all of that. Psalm 96 tells you, you face all of that, you see things that are wrong, that that no one has come in. When is Jesus going to come and fix this? And he says, you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice. Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And so, beloved, as we close, rejoice. He surely comes. He comes to judge the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you take our sin seriously. You take our worship seriously. We take it seriously, Lord, as well. So Lord, we, we hold out our hands to you and we say, Lord Jesus, come, bring your loving correction to us. It's a sign that we are children, sons and daughters with a father who loves us enough to bring the correction that we need. Give us grace to receive it, not with fear and, and with, with, with turning away from you, but receiving it with confidence, knowing that you want us here, you want us in your presence, and you can and will accomplish righteousness and peace in us. Lord, we, we pray that you would come to us and we would receive you, not resist you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.